Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. out on earth join two friends as we broaden our small town perspectives and explore the enchanting hilarious and unusual interconnections between society ecology and queer culture (laughs) welcome back welcome back to back back again episode two how are you doing cricket i'm doing so good i just had a lovely meal i just had a lovely dessert Courtesy of Cricket and courtesy of Wyatt. Yeah. The two resident chefs. My belly is full. My cup mm. runneth over. Ugh, my heart is just palpitating out of my chest. <laughs> palpitating. Yeah, I had to use a strong um, SAT <laughs> verb. Um, yeah. But yeah, what's our what's our topic today, Cricket? We are talking about houseplants. Houseplant imperialism and a uh, plant talk. Plant talk. So I feel like we're going to lightly touch on plant talk because there's not like research around it yet, which I anticipate there will be more research yeah. around it. Um, but I figured for the plant talk, we can focus specifically on like our own experiences with it and yeah. like how we've been influenced by it. Because like I know how I have personally. Yeah. Do, do you have any houseplants? Um, so I used to have famously, I used to have 60 in my, one room. Um, but then I started 60, 60. And then I started moving and I had to slowly get rid of them. And then whenever I thought I was going to be spending a semester in Mexico, I got rid of all of them. And so oh. I was down to zero for a while. But now I'm back up to a grand total of one. If nice. if you don't count legations, if you don't count propagations, because oh. I've got three pothos that are currently in some water. 
But I feel like we can jump into the meat of the episode. Yeah. Well, okay. So here's how this is going to work. I I did research on like the history of houseplants. Like what is a houseplant? Like very conceptual. Mm. Who Mm -hmm. decided what plants are houseplants and which plants aren't. Mm -hmm. Um, And just kind of go from there. And then uh, I'll toss it over to you. Yeah. So I kind of will go from. So I think. I was looking over your notes. You ended around the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to pick up right about there. Okay, good. Um, and kind of go through the ups and the downs of the houseplant craze Ooh. and sort of the factors that influence that in modern years. And then I had a couple of other things, but I'll save those till the end because I'm really excited to get to those. Okay. But yeah, no, this is going to be a fun episode. I like looked at your notes and I didn't look too hard because I always like it to be a surprise. But like a lot of this, I don't know. Yeah. So I'm very excited. Uh, I know. I learned so much. I had so much fun reading about this one. Yes. Uh, Okay. So I'll just start. So what to you is a houseplant? Um, So I guess I define a houseplant as a plant that can survive inside. Mm. That's like my most basic definition. How do you define it? Well, I think that it is a plant that survives inside. But from what I've learned, why is our 73 degrees house? the right environment for them mm. and house plants are mostly perceived as like exotic plants mm, the word exotic plants, yes plants that like you wouldn't find in the ecosystem when mm-hmm. you like leave outside your doors yeah let's see uh, i'll just get into like plants and people mm-hmm. uh the relationship between plants and people and why we bring them inside so since before there was a concept of the home plants have been cohabitating with humans within our dwellings Uh, stored for their gifts of medicine, insect repellent, cooking, scent, and just aesthetic admiration. What would you say are the uh, the gifts that your houseplants give you? Um, I find that I often get really anxious when Mm -hmm. I'm surrounded by only um, like inorganic materials. Mm -hmm. So if like concrete, plaster, like a lot of the things our houses are made out of, you know, we don't even get to see the woods that make up the... uh, what do they call that? Not the scaffolding, but anyways, the skeleton <laughs> of the house. You didn't get to see the wood that makes that up. And so I think a lot of the times for me, plants serve as sort of a buffer between this like increasingly modernized world and increasingly like concrete, impenetrable worlds. And they give me sort of a connection back to the outdoors, even when I'm inside. Yeah. And the outdoors is where I find the most peace, I feel. Mm, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Peace. Uh, just the experience of being surrounded by nature. Mm-hmm. Totally. I read two main books that kind of informed what I learned about the history of houseplants. Mm. One of them is by Mike Maunder. Um, he is a professor, I believe, of botany. Hey, Mike. And he wrote the book Houseplants. And then there's also the book Potted History, How Houseplants Took Over Our Homes. Quick fun fact. Potted plants, the like origin of potted, and I don't know if you're going to say this, but the origin of potted plants, they called any plant that you can like cook with a potted plant oh, because you put it put in it a in pot. The pot. Yeah. yeah, I remember so that. That's like the vernacular origins <laughs> of potted plants. That's cool. Okay, so the second book that I read was Potted History How House Plants Took Over Our Homes by Catherine Horwood. And she is, um, She's more of like a British botanist and her the perspective of her book was very much more of like from a British perspective. Okay. So I kind of supplemented that with other articles about the history of houseplants mm-hmm. pre like British Empire. Pre 
colonization. Which is important. <laughs> okay, so Maunder says, house plants tell a complex story about how we live, why we need nature, and how we take wild things and domesticate them. Mm. I thought that was beautiful. And he explains how, as house plants moved around the globe, they have been modified by each successive culture, with different regions developing favorite species and cultivars. So, yeah, he's explaining, like, the evolution of houseplants came with how people changed and moved around the globe mm-hmm. and all that stuff. He says, over thousands of years, we have used plants, usually flowers and foliage, to mark the seasons and holy days, to bring luck and blessings to our houses and to honor the choreography of life. I love that. The, the choreography, choreography of, of life. life. That's beautiful. Many ancient societies used living plants to decorate temple complexes and palaces. Mm-hmm. Um, one such example is Pharaoh... Uh, she's a baddie who sent expeditions to Somalia land for incense trees to grow in her temple complex. And a lot of historians um, credit her as the first exotic houseplant collector because the idea of going out and finding something and bringing it back mm-hmm. to show off. <laughs> okay. Uh, but of course, Greeks and Romans grew plants in pots and it's possible that they could have brought them inside their homes as well. However, it's like there's not a lot of like paintings or specific history of oh i have a plant inside my home Mm -hmm. which again goes back to like the idea of separating inside from outside like Mm -hmm. what is what's that difference there (laughs) earlier civilizations of japan egypt and india also had ornamental plants commonly potted and placed in courtyards and gardens surrounding their home and it's possible again that they were brought inside their homes but we don't really know so to me, again, like what seems to distinguish a garden or another plant from a house plant, and to in these scholars' eyes, is the idea of the exotic. Maunder says it demonstrates the pervasiveness of the cult of the exotic, a cult that still drives our horticultural passions. The word exotic is ultimately derived from the Greek exo, meaning outside, and refers to those artifacts or products from another place or culture. It has connotations of the strange the alluring and sometimes sinister, sometimes whimsical, but importantly with regards to houseplants, tropical, coming from the tropics. So for many of us, he says, houseplants are an affordable piece of exotica. Okay. To me, it wasn't until the British began to create like exclusive spaces of extreme wealth and opulence and like a lust for the exotic taste that the concept of a houseplant was even possible. And so, like, before colonization, plants were family, a recognizable part of one's surrounding ecosystem Mm -hmm. with a reciprocal relationship. People knew their plants, Mm -hmm. and plants knew their people. Mm. So, with the spread of British imperialism, the notion that one can, like, conquer nature from all around the world and bring it into one's home was, like, accessible for the first time. And I think it's this trend that, like, sets apart gardens from houseplants. Mm. It's not whether or not the plant is indoors. It's whether or not the plant is being bent to the will mm. of its caregiver. Wow. Okay. That was a little writing from me. That's so meta. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I think it's interesting how, like, when it comes to exoticism, and especially, like, around this time and during colonization, you know, um, a lot of people of color, black people, indigenous people were considered exotic. Um, mm-hmm. But in extremely... I've been called that... Before. That's actually insane to me. Yeah. Um, it's fu- oh my god. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. So I think it's really interesting, like 
what kind of exoticism we're okay with and Mm -hmm. what kind of exoticism we're not. And I think ultimately it comes down to whether or not we can tame and corral the exoticism, Mm -hmm. whether or not we're willing to embrace it and admire it. And so I think it's like very interesting um, parallels and like contrasts between the two. Yeah. Because I mean, now we've got a booming houseplant industry. Um, but we still have systemic racism and black women are still being sexualized as exotic because of their bodies and stuff like that. Yes. You know? The same plants that yeah. are, they're, that are, yep. that are causing a thriving plant economy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it, it's yeah, that's interesting. Totally, totally a good point. Okay. So I'm going to get into like why the British wanted exotic plants because I think they're silly. They have such weird like desires. <laughs> so, um, First of all, like exotic plants were a strong status symbol mm-hmm. in the 1400s and 1500s. Also, I just wanted to say when I'm reading and someone says like 15th century, I want to close the book and throw it away. Like I hate I why because it's the 1400s. Okay, and so how do you feel about when people say the 20th century? Do you freak out and do you want the 1900 set? I just want to say 1900s. It makes more sense in my brain. I mean, okay. <laughs> I, I will say there was a learning curve for me when it did come to the centuries. Now, having been on the other side of the learning curve, it makes a lot of sense. And it's not a mouthful. Well, I guess okay, 19th century uh, is just as a mouthful, of, just as much of a mouthful as saying 1900s. I don't know. I just like, especially with years and dates, I get so confused. And so that's fair. That's fair. I wish there was just one way to... Anyways, okay, so... <laughs> Damn, okay, because all of my stuff is in the centuries verbiage, and yours is That's all fine. in the 1900s verbiage, so... <laughs> Our okay. listeners can get a little practice. Yes, okay. Okay, so um, uh, in the 1500s, plants were already used in the home, but there was no concept of the houseplant because they were their uses were purely practical, and houseplants evolved alongside like the financial capability to decorate. Mm. Like People didn't really have mm. plants to decorate because they were seen as more of things that you use, mm-hmm. I guess, for the home. Utilities. Yes. So only the wealthy could afford like large window panes and indoor heating and therefore have enough light to grow plants indoors. Herbs were grown by even the most humble households to be used for medicine, insect repellent, household cleaning, and for putting on the floor. Uh, up until recently, it was widely considered that good smells could help fight off disease and infection. So the British would or just, I guess, people across Europe, they would just put plants everywhere because they thought it was the smell that had the infection in it, which I I feel like I've heard that before, but that's crazy to me. <laughs> I'm a, next time I get uh, COVID, I'm just going to lay down next to a bundle of rosemary and like <laughs> just <you> pray. <laughs> no, no. But yeah, rosemary and thyme were used during times of plague. Oh, okay, slay. Yeah, they attached them to walking sticks okay. in little pouches so that... While they were walking through, like, infected areas full of plague-ridden people, they could just sniff their pouches of thyme and rosemary. Instead of the smell of the rotting people around them? Well, they thought it would protect them. They thought, like, I having mean, those good smells would be, like, yeah. I guess smelling insane? rosemary is better than smelling people, like, dying from the plague. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <sighs> okay, fine. <laughs> I, I acquiesce. Um, okay, so as the British Empire began to extract resources from the Americas, Asia, and Egypt, plants were brought back by colonizers for the British society to cultivate, and many of these plants were not able to survive in the cold-ass climate of England. So there was a growing interest in bringing plants indoors to mimic the exotic conditions of uh, the plant's homeland. And this act in and of itself was, again, like an expression of wealth 
having the resources to control climate Mm -hmm. in your house. Like, Mm -hmm. that was not a thing. Um, Also, water. They didn't have Mm. running water. So if you wanted to, like, you know. You got to grab your little pail. You got to go out. On some Jack and Jill shit. Yeah. (laughs) Hell no. (laughs) And that's a lot of work to keep up with, uh, you know. Especially depending on the size of your collection. Like, if you've got, like, an atrium in your place, then, like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And um, although there is like literary evidence of plants being cultivated indoors mm-hmm. house plants were like rarely seen in paintings from this period and um horwood has this one painting the somerset house conference from 1604 that she says is the first depiction of a house plant which is like um i don't know it's just like this vine coming out and it's heavily debated whether or not it's like coming in through the window or not so wait, why? Why are we debating that? I don't know because they were like, "Is this a house plan or is it not?" So yeah, if listeners want to look at that picture, um, it's kind of interesting because they were like, "Is that a tree? Is it inside? What is it in?" It's and, like the artist took yeah. the man from um, uh, American Gothic and then just copy and pasted him like ten times. Yeah, I know they all look exactly the yeah, same. It's really crazy. <laughs> the only difference is like some of them are bald, but other than that, like all of them are in full geesh. Yeah. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. One of the most popular, like the first house plant was citrus fruits and oranges. Mm. Uh, and they were cultivated by the wealthy in large greenhouses or conservatories. I have this quote. Soon oranges became popular among the very rich and structures built to keep botanical specimens alive. Uh, like the building at Versailles that housed King Louis' 3,000 orange trees. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So he was kind of like a plant He's talk influencer. He's in business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, fun fact, greens was a term used until um, the 1900s, meaning evergreens. Greens, beans, And this is the potatoes. evolution of the term greenhouse. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, wait, that's actually really cool. Yeah. I guess that makes a lot more sense. Rather than it just being a house for greenery, it's a house that keeps things green year round. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe that's like common sense, but honestly, like I, I wouldn't have made that connection. Yeah. Well, hmm. I think that's what they would have called houseplants is mm. greens. I have some greens in my house because they stay green all the time. That's so crazy. And now when we say greens, I'm talking about like collard greens. Yeah. Like, you yummy. know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, the mics are too good. <laughs> that was some real ASMR. <laughs> okay, so there was a huge moment in the houseplant culture during the 1600s um, because in 1660, the Great Fire of London took place. And this event drastically changed the interiors of urban British homes. So before the fire, houses were like really close together. And because they were so close together, like, there was literally no light coming in through windows. Mm. So there was like no point in having a window. <laughs> Damn, I'd be so depressed. I know. Like it, um, it, it's kind of it, like London prior fire was kind of like. Not prior fire. <laughs> prior fire. You said pre, pre, <laughs> pre. Um, I don't even know what I was going to say. Pre incineration <laughs> London. There you go. <laughs> pre incineration. Jesus Christ. Okay, before the fire, um, London kind of looked like auto constructed housing. Which is interesting. Anyways, so houses were rebuilt with uh, brick, replacing heavy wooden paneling with painted walls that brought more light into the room. Uh, few households had running water, but the wealthy had like water pumps, which okay. was a big deal. And 
Now they had a law that no floors or windows could extend outwards beyond the property line. So that meant that more light could come through the windows from the street. Okay, so like no like balcony type things or like no like window awnings because it's going to prevent the light well, that's like, coming through? Imagine a house that looks like like it's almost like a slice of pizza uh-huh. and it just gets taller on the top. Uh-huh. That's what they were doing. They were building more on the top. And so oh, as so the two na- pieces of pizza would gotcha. meet, they would like roofs would touch each other. They would link up at the top yes. and then it'd just be like a, a chasm of darkness below because yes. it's just in shadow. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. Work. And that's why the fire spread so quickly because all the houses were touching each other. <laughs> that, and I can imagine that like, and this is like, this is just a guess, but if everything is touching like that, or at least tight like that, it's really channeling the airflow through all of these things. So I can imagine mm-hmm. that only helped flame the th- uh you fan the fan the flames. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It took me a second, but I got I, there. I haven't ever really learned much about the London fire until I studied this episode and I was like, dang, that's crazy. Like yeah. the whole thing freaking burned down. <laughs> yeah. I got a couple of, of London tidbits in my research, yeah. but since mine was more modern, she, uh, she wasn't yeah. talking about London much, but. So all of those changes that they made to the building codes mm-hmm. really opened up like the indoors of British society and gave them a lot more spaces to have plants. And one of those is like windowsills. They literally didn't have windowsills. I can't and imagine. It's a fire hazard to not have one. So they were like, you have to have a windowsill and it has to be X amount of inches deep. And that's the perfect place to put a plant. So with the added space for plants, uh, the colonization of the 1600s brought many varieties of plants into wealth, wealthy British society. I also wanted to mention that cultivating these plants was considered to be a masculine activity Mm. alongside ideas of like brave exploration to the unknown stupid (laughs) uh and the concept of conquering the plant Mm, yeah and there was one girlie who uh they talked about in the book mary capel somerset she was rich um she came from a family of like aristocratic male gardeners. Okay. But she Nepotism had baby. two dead husbands and she just took all that money from her dead husbands okay, to grandma. build like a gigantic uh plant conservatory. Not her being my it. grandma. <laughs> okay, grandma. I'm literally marrying for money and then dipping. I live. So, you know, she had access to this before many other women were able to partake. Okay. But um she went on to establish some of the best gardens in Europe, and she called her conservatory the infirmary, which Aww. I think is really cute. Also, at the time, they thought, uh, you know how they thought that, like, scent was to keep away the plague? Mm-hmm. They also thought that plants grew as a result of heat rather than sunlight. I had never heard that so, before. So greenhouses were commonly retrofitted with charcoal stoves. Okay, sauna. And they would literally just like cook these. They would cook these plants, and some of them were like dark. Like they thought that they just had to like heat them up. What the fuck? So let's see. We get to the 1800s, the Victorian era. Yeah. And Victorian homes were dark and smoky from gas lamps and the coal and dust outside. Damn. And so. <laughs> that sounds like the pits. Jesus. Um, but I think this goes back to what you were saying in the beginning of how houseplants give you access to nature mm. when you need it most. And so it was because of this dark, dingy world onset by the Industrial Revolution that led many Victorians 
who develop an obsession with romanticizing and bringing the natural world into their homes. And comes romanticism. Yeah. And um, I thought this was cool. Houseplants are a way of grasping for the nature that we have been deprived of. Mm. And writer and naturalist E.O. Wilson defined this as biophilia. Yes, I have heard the, the connections term. that human beings subconsciously seek with the rest of life. T. And I think it's interesting that the same society that created the industrial the industrial revolution mm. also is like depriving these people of mm. of that experience of living yeah. among nature. And the only way that they can access it is through further colonization of mm-hmm. exotic plants. And by buying into the same system that is promulgating the exact issue that they're dealing with. Yeah. 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 Thus is capitalism. Right. It was dark and dingy and the sky was black. So um, <laughs> plants probably aren't going to love that. You no. know? Um, they're getting gassed the fuck out. Yeah. Like Because of that, it was like, the only way that people could keep plants was in a wardian case. Have you heard of that? Yes. I watched a um, video essay, actually. Oh, they okay. talked about it. Uh, this is the first time I had heard of it. But basically, it was like, this guy was like, oh, my God. All his, his name was also like Ward or some shit. I don't know. Okay. But he was like, oh, my God, if I put a plant in this glass case and seal it away from the polluted air that I'm coughing up all day, it lives. Hmm, who would have and, thought? But that turned into like a really strong tool that was able to transport plants across the ocean because it was the first time like without the wording case they couldn't oh. like really bring a lot of plant varieties what? so so it's like a love him and we hate him for plants <laughs> yeah okay a work. plant suitcase and they're really cute like if it you looks go cute. and google like wording case there's a lot of different kinds and I don't know. They, they're just kind of like dark academia. Yeah, vibes. down. <laughs> so, yeah, this gave more people the ability to become plant collectors and hunters. Plant hunters was a thing and transport plants across the ocean. And that leads me to the 1950s. But I have one more story. Get into your story. Tell. The story of the poinsettia. Do you know the story of the poinsettia? Yeah. No, actually, I don't know the story of the poinsettia. I thought you were asking if I was familiar with it. <laughs> and my brain was like, yes. But- yeah. Well, okay, so the original Nahuatl name for the plant um, that we call poinsettia is Quetlaxochi, cultivated by the Aztecs long before the European colonization of the Americas. Okay. Um, uh, It was used in decoration in the production of red and purple dyes, as well as for medicines derived from the plant's milky white sap. Hmm. And wild Quetlaxochi in western Mexico... uh, comes into full bloom in the month of December. Oh, so okay, there it is. That, like, timing of the bloom began the plant's association with the Christmas season during the 16th century when missionaries spread the Catholic faith. Spread the Catholic faith. That's not mm, what they did. Pillage. Uh, yeah. And, anyways, I'm not going to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, it, throughout Mexico. And so, the plant subsequently came to be called La Flor de Nochebuena, Literally the, literally the Christmas Eve flower, or simply the Christmas flower. And in 1828, it was taken from its native home and brought to the United States by jo- Joel Roberts Poinsett. It's literally named after him. Stop. And he was the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. <gasps> what a it. fucking scandal. I know, right? <laughs> and he, Shut so up. He celebrated for introducing the poinsettia to the United States 
and for co-founding the Smithsonian Institution. Wow, another colonizer behind the Smithsonian. Yeah, yeah, but um, (gasps) his legacy as a slave owner and his role in the displacement of countless Native Americans has led to some people to reject the name Poinsettia in favor of the Native name. This is a beautiful Beautiful. name. Um, My grandma always kept them in the house around Christmas. (laughs) But I was never allowed to touch them because they're poisonous. My grandma also likes them. They're beautiful flowers. But Maunder is like, this is, he loves to talk about the poinsettia because he's like, um, today they're bred in like so many different colors. And the poinsettias that you buy for Christmas time Mm -hmm. are really just like picked. And they were like, born to die like they're a house plant that's born to die because there's no way for you to keep them up you buy them and then they die after the season is up. yeah i mean that makes sense if they yeah so it's kind of a good example of like the most like hyper consumerist house plant and it it stands alone as a a, an example of how uh disposable we treat nature around us and quote-unquote natural resources yeah yeah that's kind of crazy yeah so that was my last um, point. My last big point. Your last big point. So, Zeta. Uh, do you feel like I set the scene? You definitely set the scene. For what house plants are. Yeah, you definitely set the scene. I feel <laughs> like you did the hard part here. I feel like I get to do like the really fun part and like introduce like modern day stuff. Yeah. And you did all of the the deep dive history, which well, it was so fun. Granted, you do love a deep dive history. I do. You do. I. I was really hoping to get more info on like plant talk specifically and social media's sort of contribution to mm. the meteoric rise of houseplants. Yeah. But unfortunately, there's not a whole lot yet. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping in the next like few years they come out with something. You can be the author. Stop. PhD okay. program? No. no. Calling? I, the way that like researching for this podcast has actually led me to multiple things that I'm like, oh, I could write a PhD over right? this. Like I could write a dissertation over this. Me too. I'm like, Ooh. yeah. And it's honestly such a fun passion project and like personal exploration at the same time. Yeah. It's so cool. I learned Ugh. so much. I, none of this I knew. Like orangeries. I had yeah. no clue that sort of thing before I started researching for this. Yeah. So yeah, you really set the groundwork for a lot of what I'm going to talk about. Um, you also touched a lot on sort of touch. You kind of danced around the sort of gender aspects to houseplant care that I want to touch on. Mm-hmm. Um, just I because tend to do that. I listen. I want to give you all the cherries. I there's this is there's no way to separate this from gender, which is yeah. something I'm so excited about. So just gonna kind of jump into post um, fire. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah, post incineration <laughs> London. That's how I'm going to think of London now. No, like, literally. Post after, like, yeah. fire. <laughs> post smoky bear London. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the larger windowsills helped a lot, increased interest in the plants, indoor gardens and conservatories, orangeries, stuff like that. Like you had mentioned, um, you had touched on how cultivating of these more quote-unquote exotic plants is more of a man's job and so contrastly a lot of the women's work was done with those potted plants that i talked about earlier Mm -hmm. so like any plant that goes into cooking was considered a woman's a woman's job okay so they would have little herb gardens like right outside the kitchen and they would just like go out to little herb gardens and like do their little tending pick their little sprigs of rosemary and then like run back into the kitchen on their godly wife shit no literally you i did that today i live so i mean i always thought it was kind of fun i'd have always been drawn to like 
the gender roles of women generally. But that's a topic for another time. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, they tended to do them right outside of the kitchen. Um, and indoor gardening also became culturally tangential to things like embroidery, mm. crocheting, um, knitting, etc. Because things it was, we love. Yeah. Things things we famously love. <laughs> um, why it's sitting in the corner knitting right now. Um <laughs> But because, you know, women's work. And so in a way, not only was houseplant culture the conquering of nature, but it was also another way to police and define womanhood Mm. in the Victorian era. Yeah. And so I also think it's really interesting because if you look at like clothing patterns throughout the years, floral patterns for women have always been a thing. And so it's really interesting that florals are always associated with women but Mm -hmm. women were excluded from a lot of the cultivation of these florals and instead were herbs and that kind of thing so i think it's super interesting like the exclusion where they want it and the inclusion where they want it and men is who they are in this in this case right um so yeah after the sort of 18th and 19th centuries, we phase into, so 18th, 19th, 1700s, 1800s. Okay, you <laughs> per- don't have to translate. I can get it. No, no, no. no <laughs> not, not, that was less for you and more so for audience if they are also struggling with the 19th thing. You know, listen, I'm You'd trying. You think with four years of college, I would I, I would get listen, past that, but as much as it you always read, is confusing. As much, as much as you read during college, but listen, I always okay. had to like Google it. I was You're like, so good with everything else. You have century. to have a weakness. You have to have a week. This is your kryptonite. Um, (laughs) So we touched a bit on romanticism earlier, um, sort of the contrast to the dark, dingy exteriors. Uh, Romanticism sought to bring nature in, in a lot of ways, it idealized nature. Uh, You can go through the readings and writings. Romanticism. Romanticism. Mm. Um, you can go through the readings of a lot of people from like the inception of the Autobahn Society, and those are like perfect examples of romantic, uh, romantic writing. Uh, okay. The way they talk about the mountains, the way they talk about the sunrises—it's all so eloquent and filled with so many adjectives and like, yeah. all of these different things, just describing the beauty of it. Um, and so that's kind of romanticism. It contrasted the industrialism running rampant um, and embraced the beauty mm. of nature and the human condition. So kind of how Cricket was saying with all the pollution in the air, this is sort of a, I mean, obviously prior industrialism, there was pollution, but industrialism way increased the amount yeah. of, like, I can't even, I can't overstate that like, yeah. at all. Um, I don't know so- the numbers. I just know it was a lot. I can't tell you numbers, but I have mental images of the graphs that I've seen coming from like pre-industrialism to post. And it is obscene. It is actually obscene. So, um. Have you ever read Angela's Ashes? No. That sounds so hardcore. What the fuck? (laughs) I had to read it for like high school. And I, it wasn't. Angela's Ashes? It was in like, I think he's Irish, but it's, it's basically this kid who just like, he works in the coal mine. Or not the coal mine, like the coal plant. Yes, child and he labor. he just like goes and he comes home and he's covered in soot. And there's like three chapters. He's like, I went to the coal plant and I came home and I was covered in soot. And then I went back and I was covered in soot. And that's what I think of when I think of like. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry, that was Pokemon Go. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think of when I think of the Industrial Revolution in, 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 in Europe. It's just like everything is dirty. Coal, sooty, dingy. Yeah. 
from there, the combination of romantic ideals and the increasing popularity of houseplants was another way by which womanhood was policed by those who had the power to do so. Mm. Um, Policed. Policed. That's one of my, I think, policed is um, a more accurate word than um, regulated or things like that, you know. Um, So, yeah, I think that it was, in a lot of ways, it was a tool to just for men to define women and sort of keep them into those boxes similar to how we're seeing even now i mean things mm-hmm. haven't really changed all that much yeah so uh the houseplant craze lasted quite a while um and then uh, we finally entered world war one I, I think uh, maybe this is wait let me let me fact check myself when was because i don't know anything about world uh wars world war one was like 1918 Okay, yeah. Right? So, yeah, right? 1914. <gasps> okay. So, this is this is perfect. I was right. I just had to fact check myself. We don't want to spread fake news. So, <laughs> no, they love to not teach us about World War 1. No. Listen, because they know we fucked up. Yeah. But um <laughs> so, you know, World War 1, that honestly redefined a lot of gender roles. It def- redefined the economy, it redefined how we um appropriate resources like so many things Mm -hmm. and so as a result of wartime scarcity of resources and stuff you see houseplants sort of fall in their popularity Mm. the men get shipped off to war so you know that masculine activity of cultivating exotic plants slows down a lot whoa um and then women start to enter the workforce so there's not a whole lot of time at home to do sort of that cultivating and the tending to the herb gardens and all these things and so you kind of see it fall out so and before men were like drafted into the war they were like but my monstera <laughs> that is the gayest thing <laughs> that is the gayest yeah. thing i live so yeah i mean essentially that's quite literally what had happened <laughs> okay. um so you know obviously it's hard to keep houseplants if you're even having a hard time keeping food on the table yeah. you know what i mean and so the war was then followed by the Great Depression, which even further crippled people's access to resources that would allow them to have houseplants. Um, and it's kind of demanded a certain realism and practicality in order to cope with the realities of the Great Depression. Okay. Um, and this sort of reckoning with um, the Great Depression and all that followed is sort of the transition from romanticism into modernism. Modernism is similar to romanticism in the way that it tries to sort of hide from the realities of the outside world, Um, whereas romanticism brings in elements of nature and natural Mm -hmm. beauty and things like this. Modernism was a stark contrast. It brought out sort of clean lines, very minimalistic type things, um, Scandinavian architecture made a huge like debut over here right before modernism hits sort of the only uh, houseplants that were common were cacti and succulents because they required, you know, a bunch of small maintenance that you could you could maintain that. Yeah. Um, and Not so, me. Uh, no, no. I and I, I've always hated cacti <laughs> and succulents. Um, I feel like there's it's too hands off, in my opinion. Well, I also feel like they're so accessible mm. like i was at aldi today and Never. there was like a table of them in these ugly little buckets with no drainage yep. and i was like okay so everyone's gonna go get and one of those all of them are gonna die yeah because there's absolutely no drainage and so then they're, they're gonna, gonna drown. hate plants yeah so <laughs> it's just this like really shitty positive feedback glue yeah um okay 
so jumping back in modernism. So like I said, it was a stark contrast. Um, and it set itself apart from romanticism by completely morphing and dramatizing reality beyond the point of recognition. Um, it abandoned the intense emotions and dramas that characterized the romantic period and encouraged leaving behind that tradition of like very emotionally intense language. In regards to houseplants specifically, an architectural renaissance led to the meteoric return to popularity. Scandinavian design, as I mentioned earlier, began to make its way to the States. There are homes with harsh lines, geometric shapes, and neutral colors. Um, and then that was contrasted with plants as a natural element. So post-Great Depression, you know, people didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. So when you had a modernist house, it kind of was a sort of haven from the outside world, which was very poor and yeah. sort of a state of destitution at the point. And so modernism was a way to kind of hide from the poverty that was surrounding them. And then plants were a way to soften that sort of modernity. Um, mm. I also just noticed that I say sort of all the time. It's okay. So many times. It's my new filler word. Facing <laughs> <laughs> out um and like for sort of. <laughs> I say, you know. I mean, I feel like, you know, is a good one. I'll take, okay. you know. I like sort of. It's better than like, um, or like. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and then uh, going back a tiny bit in time, 1926 marked the first official nursery selling potted plants. Oh. It was called Monrovia Gardens. Ooh. Monrovia. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense because I, I skipped over this part, but there's mm-hmm. nurseries mm-hmm. in Europe were just places where you would give your plants to the person with a over the winter uh, and then they would like keep them alive because, a daycare yeah a plant daycare that's what nursery that's the nursery. so cute the, nursery. Oh, shut the fuck up <laughs> shut the front door that got I me know. isn't that cool that got me yeah okay because no one had like heating or anything so you'd have to go Bring well, it to the man. And especially if it. they thought the heat was the thing the group plants. Of course they were taking <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh my God. So, and then um, fast forward a little bit. How we, I, you asked me earlier, like what draws me towards houseplants? And mm-hmm. I was mentioning the sort of anxiety release that I get from them. Mm-hmm. Some people might say that they love that houseplants recycle the oxygen in their homes yeah which was a, a myth that was introduced in the 1960s really? by nasa scientist bill wolverton um so they kind of oversimplified the results of the study by saying you can put a few plants in a house and it'll sort of recycle that oxygen every 24 to 48 hours yeah that is not true you would have to have a plant per square foot yeah. of home in order to get that amount of oxygen recycling. Yeah. And your so, only cacti are not doing that. Hey, girl, your cacti <laughs> are not freshening your air. Go get an air freshener. Go get one of those, um, what are they called? Open your window. No, literally. Ooh, um, those ozone machines. Go get an ozone machine, mama. Okay. Have you heard of those? No. It's what smokers use in their houses whenever they move out because oh. they can sit the little ozone machine in the house and it completely gets rid of all of the smells from oh. yeah it's really expensive but it like completely gets rid of the smoke smell so yeah um i think people use it specifically for cigarette smoke i don't know if like does weed smoke linger long enough for that i feel like it doesn't stick the Maybe. same way that cigarette smoke does Who i don't knows? know sometimes i i walk into someone's house and i'm like that's dank 
And then they're like, oh, I haven't smoked in weeks. You need an ozone machine. And I'm like, mm. (laughs) But it's probably just like sitting out on the table. No, literally. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So kind of moving into modern houseplant culture, um, we have a contemporary society, which we could argue that this isn't a contemporary concept, um, that we are accused of plant blindness, which is the Mm. inability to notice the plants in one's environment. Yeah. And as a result failing to recognize their importance or appreciate their uniqueness regarding them as lesser as of lesser status than animals. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I know I'll walk through a park and I'll see a squirrel, like, hee 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 squirrel. I don't walk through a park for the most time and go, Oh my God, tree. Actually, that's a lie. I love trees. Yeah. I, don't know. I said that and I was like, no, I love trees. But most of society has not been conditioned to appreciate yeah. Yeah. the biodiversity of plants in the same yeah. way that we do like, animals and I, think, I see what you mean and i think a lot of that has to do with like i know that my love for trees came from one learning about them and learning the complexities of trees and mm-hmm. the intricacies of them and how they communicate and the like hydraulics or like the um <sighs> hydraulics is not the right word but how water moves through a tree yeah, and like drives and all of its processes yeah. like i think really becoming more familiar with the uniqueness and with the importance really allowed me to love them more. So like, I completely see it. Like for a lot of people, if they lost the tree in their backyard, they wouldn't think twice, but if they lost their pet, that would be the end of the world, you know? Yeah. And so I feel like that kind of shows that dichotomy between the two a little bit. Right. Backyard ecology. Yeah. It's the best way to feel at home wherever you are. You it know? is. It is indeed. That's actually quite literally why I got into tree identification is because I was in uh, Pennsylvania at the time and I was there alone, like with nobody around me. And I was like, I feel so out of place. And I found that one of the best ways to come about that sense of place is to seek out nature around me and mm-hmm. to get familiar with the nature around me because they know you. And then I'm walking through it and I'm like, yourself exactly. And I would take like, so a lot of indigenous groups will take uh, tobacco to the trees. Oh, and so yeah. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, it might be a little appropriate for me to grab a bag of tobacco. <laughs> so I always had a little pouch of sunflower seeds on Aww. me. And so I'd be chewing on my little sunflower seeds and I would find the tree and I would take a leaf from it. I'd identify it. I'd put it in my little leaf press and then I'd leave a little cluster of sunflower seeds at the base of the trunk as like a little thank you. Yeah. And now you're acquainted and now you're friends and now you have a friend in Pennsylvania. And I have pieces of them that I have with me still that I'm like, you were a part of my time there and you were part of making me feel home there in a way that I wouldn't have felt without you. Yeah. And so it feels the average person, they'd be like, that's kind of weird. Like, why do you, why are you, why do you think about trees like that? Yeah. But, but it, meanwhile, they're experiencing biophilia. Yeah. And they're I'm like, like ah, I'm, I need something. Yes. So I don't know. But so now I kind of want to share some figures with you. I'm going to kind of bust through these just because I know figures are like a very like. Yeah. The market size of the plant and flower growing sector. So basically like how big the market for people that grow plants and flowers Mm -hmm. was estimated to be $15.23 billion in the U.S. in 2020. Okay. And the figure saw an increase from the previous year's size of $14.18 billion. And it was forecasted to grow another half a billion dollars in a year. 
So we're averaging about, let's see, $7.75 billion a year in increase in uh, sales, which is just kind of wild. Okay, so it's just, it's going up. Yeah, no, it exponentially. It's ridiculous. A houseplant gardening participation survey from 2010 to 2019 estimated a third of Americans participate in gardening to some degree. Whether it be outdoor gardens, indoor gardens, like a small house plant, um, something like that. And so a lot of this growth has something to do with plant talk or a side of TikTok that discusses where plants, plant care, and in some cases, um, plant uses. So um, Alexis, the forager on TikTok, Mm -hmm. I know that she was a big sort of like leaping board into my obsession with plants. Yeah. Um, and I know that, like, now she's on Crash Course Botany. So, yeah. like... I started watching that after you told me about so it. It's so good. Yeah, it's it so good. good. Like, I know that it's made for, like, a very basic understanding. That's what I need. But I'm still getting <laughs> so much from it. Yeah. Um, I really love it. Um, but I know that when... So, I haven't had TikTok for a couple of years now. I, like, went down a tarot rabbit hole and, like, had to delete the app. Same. And so... When I was on the app, though, I was on Plant Talk, and they there would be people selling um, like cuttings of plants. So a cutting, if you don't know, is like a um, well, I know you know cricket, but for the audience, um, it was like you've been new. No, what's a cutting? <laughs> so a cutting is basically when you cut a plant right below a node or like those little bumps that stick out on the stems, and then you plop that little thing in some water, and new roots will grow from that node. And so there are people on TikTok selling cuttings for thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. so like one leaf with a few nodes on it for thousands of dollars and these are for like monsteras like albino monsteras things like that very special hoyas like a bunch of different stuff Mm -hmm. i know that i personally got sucked into plant talk why i got a zuzu plant why i wanted like a chinese money tree a peperomia i believe is what it's called yeah plant talk had me by the balls i'm not gonna lie and i had spent a shit ton of money on it like i said i had 60 house plants at one point in a tiny, 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 tiny room. It was bad. It was yeah. fun, but it was bad. Um, and even like watering all those plants was so hard. But yeah, so like plant talk, I know for me personally, really drug me into the houseplant scene. And in a lot of ways, I think really started my obsession with ecology as a whole. Yeah. So I really have to thank plant talk for that one. Uh, did you have any experiences with plant talk? Are you on TikTok still? Only to make like advertisements for my stream. <laughs> Oh my god! And, and gardening videos every now and then. I live, but I don't watch it. Okay. Um, okay. Which took a lot. I had to, you know, get off of it Detox. for a really long time. Instagram Reels now has got me by the balls. Uh, same. <laughs> but I will say my Reels are much more positive of a place. Um, I definitely had um, my time on Plant Talk. I had my time learning about plants, and I think I also had. Two of my best friends were really into it, like you and Mary. Mm, So I was like, oh my gosh, plants. Like I should. And I I also do think that that really helped me Mm. care more about it or just like, yeah, my introduction to ecology is like having a friendship with the plant. Like the first time that I really had Mm -hmm. that relationship. And I, I do, I am grateful for that. But I do understand now that like the plants I have in my home are not supposed to live here. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, now a- when I look at my monster, I almost have like a sadness. Mm. Like this isn't your home. Yes. Yeah. Because in 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 the book I read, mm-hmm. Mondu talks about what the monster looks like in the wild. It's beautiful. And it's like. It's huge. Gigantic. And mm-hmm. it it lives to climb trees. Yeah. 
That's what all those old tendrils are for. And when I learned that, I was like, oh no, my monstera doesn't get to climb a tree. Like, that's the one thing I wanted to do. But I think in a lot of ways, I think, what was I reading? It may have been braiding sweet grass, but it may have been a different book that I was reading where it talks about plants as sort of like displaced uh, relatives. Mm, yeah. And so, and she also talked a lot about how we are all displaced sort of from our origins in a way. Yeah. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I view my plants as like displaced relatives and yeah. like co-victims of capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Um And so. The thing yeah. is though, is you still bought it. I did. And would again. <laughs> and would again. Yeah. And would again. <laughs> I know. And like, I, I I still see the value and I love my monstera, but mm-hmm. now knowing that I'm I have that vision in my brain of like what she could be. Mm. And I don't know, that's where I am at right now. Yeah. How so I feel. Do you know anything about bonsai trees? Oh. Um I tried to have one. Okay. Once. What was your experience with it? I bought it on the side of the road. Uh-huh. That's not that's not a bad thing necessarily. <laughs> I feel like that could be promising. Yeah, but it was so expensive. How much? What are they? I mean, yeah, I would say it was like they? 40 bucks for yeah, a tiny, tiny checks. one. Oh, for a tiny one? Yeah. You can get a tiny one for like 15. Uh, well, Damn, they got your ass. I, I don't know. I wasn't like ready to have. It takes a lot. Yeah. Well, so bonsais are actually, they're no different from the trees you would see walking through a forest. They're just kept in smaller containers. Uh-huh. And so it's not allowing the tree to grow to the size that it wants to grow. Okay. So. Bonsais are literally just like trees that are suffocating inside of pots that are too small for them. Okay. So we're limiting their growth, which is why they're so small. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like bonsais are the ultimate example of sort of how we've colonized plants. Yeah. And tandem with orchids. Um, yeah. We're like, oh, it's a big tree that we just exactly. minimize down. And now it's just a, yeah, a I little get to tree. Have, <laughs> I get to have this big tree, but like next to my like recliner in the living room you know yeah. what i mean i just think that that's very interesting and the lengths to which we'll go in order to to conquer and to corral nature you yeah know? Uh-huh. um it's just kind of wild to me so i do i do have a couple of discussion questions for you Ooh, okay. that I, so these are kind of related to the stuff that i've talked about also a little bit loosely related so have would you consider yourself like a plant parent a plant parent? Yeah. I don't know. I don't okay. think so. Okay. Because I feel more like the plants teach me. Plant partner. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That checks out. I, I feel like, okay, but in my garden, I feel less like a parent. But when I'm with my house plants, mm-hmm. I do feel a little bit more like there's that like paternalistic mm-hmm. uh, experience. I think there's something beautiful about what you just said about your garden, about how you go out in a lot of ways. You were the receiver of the gifts and of the care from coming from nature. Like yeah. the garden in that way serves as the nurturer. And I yeah. think that's a really, really beautiful concept. Um, <laughs> so like a lot of people would consider themselves plant parents. I know at one point I considered myself a plant parent. In your Instagram bio? Yeah, it was literally. Ashton. Stop. <laughs> no, I would. <laughs> now I have since phased out of that and like would no longer consider myself a plant parent. But when I was kind of reading about this, going through the research, I was thinking about, okay, well, a lot of my female presenting friends or friends who have the ability to have children are not really that interested in having children. Mm. And 
what I've noticed is a lot of those people instead have plants. And so I wonder if what 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 does the rise and maybe plant parents coinciding with Mm. the fall and people wanting to be parents to human children? What do you think that might say about like our cultural and social relationships in the moment? Yeah, I mean, like, I'm a cat parent. (laughs) Uh, Down, down, down. It does feel like I'm a parent for them. Yeah. And so that's just because they're babies. But they also teach me things, but they're also babies. And I think we're just, as the ability to responsibly have children Mm -hmm. becomes less and less secure. Mm -hmm. Yep. Or or maybe not. Maybe you just literally just don't. Mm -hmm. You feel more empowered by another kind of lifestyle. Yeah. You just yeah. I think there's no. You find other things to nurture because mm, yeah. we need we need that. Mm. And it's part of the human condition is to want to nurture. Yeah, and be nurtured. So yeah, that checks out. Yeah, I feel like there's no real right answer to that just because everybody's reasoning is different. You that know? is really interesting, though. Um, but I thought it was interesting how we are sort of supplementing this idea of being a parent with things like pets and plants or even like fish. Instead of, you know, making that jump to be quote unquote yeah. like real parents. Yeah. Um, I will say though, mm-hmm. um, like the more I learn about ecosystems, mm-hmm. plants, all that stuff, uh, the more I'm like, should I have a baby? Stop. <laughs> so I'm kind of Wait, this like is the opposite relationship. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I have so much to share. You do. And it would be you do. nice to share that with someone. You'd be a wonderful and, and parent. And what would happen to a person who had this information from the very beginning? Yeah. But also, that seems like a really selfish reason to have a child. I don't think that's a selfish reason to have a child. I think in a world where so many parents abandon their kids or put their kids to the side because they can't control them, um, like especially like working in a shelter, it's something I see all the time. And working with these unhoused youth, is a lot of them are being rejected by their parents. Or, you know, their parents just don't have the capacity to take care of them. And so I think there's something really beautiful to be said about wanting to have a child and wanting to share those gifts with them and wanting to share that knowledge with them. Because a lot of people aren't brought into the world with that desire from their parent, you know. And so I think you're heading into it with some really great intentions. Yeah, well, I mean, it's almost like I'm finally to a point where I feel like there's like joy to be experienced. Yeah. And I could like pass that on in a way that I feel like is reliable. Whereas like before I felt like I had a place on earth, just like as a human, Mm -hmm. that's so hard to imagine. Um, So, yeah. Damn. We just got real existential. I live. (laughs) I mean, my, my second one is also pretty existential. Okay. So if, you know, during the Victorian era and during the great depression, if we were bringing plants inside as an escape and as, a means to sort of assuage those wounds of the outside world. What does that say about our modern world where we mm-hmm. see an increasing interest in plants and in house plants? And, I mean, and when was like the plant talk rise? Was it 2020? I would say 2020, 2021 were the biggest years, even like a late 2019. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, history repeats itself there. I mean, yeah, pandemic, all inside, all forced to be inside. The outside world is running the risk of infection and in some cases death. And so in a lot of ways, 
we were cut off from a lot of that. You want to bring outside inside. Yeah. So I feel like, yeah, like you said, it's really interesting how history repeats itself. Um, And I think even after the pandemic ended, quote unquote, um, this love for plant parents or for plants has remained really strong. Um, I don't feel like I've seen it um, slow at all. But I mean, yeah, that's. No, I think it has a lot of potential to like inspire more people Mm. to, you know. Yes, I think if you have one friendship, mm-hmm. what else will come, you know? Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for kind of like how you had touched on a minute ago about how you saw like me and Mary with all of our plants and that got you excited and then you got into ecology. Like if that sort of path can happen for multiple people, then I think that's a big win for the ecology movement as a whole, you know? Yeah. So, But yeah. I also think, you know, it's important to uh, do your due diligence and understand where your plant's from. Mm. You will, if you do, if you have a plant and you want it, you want to love it, right? Mm. You should learn about what it looks like when mm. it's growing in in the wild. The like, conditions of where it came from, yes. from its native place. Yeah. yeah. And how did it get to you? Like, mm-hmm. it's okay to have plants. We're mm. not telling you to like not no, have plants. Yeah, of course not. But, you know. You, you should them. introduce yourself to them yeah. and, and, and figure out what they need. Yeah. Give them a few sunflower seeds and say hi. Yeah. yeah. And, and know the history. Yes. Like, like the poinsettia. Or even like <laughs> medicinal uses. You don't have to use a plant medicinally, but even knowing that it has the capability to produce something so magical, yeah. I think increases your respect for that thing immediately. Right. So, yeah, I think knowledge is power and that applies here too, you know? Yeah. But... With that being said, I mean, that's all I've had on houseplant imperialism and tick or in plant talk. So <laughs> I learned so much. Ooh, 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 another episode in the books. That was really fun. Yeah, that was really, was really fun. fun. Hey, thank you for listening to the second episode of Out on Earth podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a little bit more about the history of houseplants and our relationship with them. Uh, We've got a ton of new spooky stuff coming your way through the season, so be sure to stay tuned. Ashton and I both live for spooky shit, so we've got a whole themed series of episodes coming up. And just a reminder, if you aren't following Out on Earth Pod on Instagram, you're missing out on a ton of awesome visual guides, memes, and jokes to go along with the show. Also, if you'd like to support us on Patreon for just $5 a month, you can gain access to early episodes, bonus episodes, and the official Out on Earth episodic zine, which serves as a listening, learning, and vocabulary guide that you can print out and fold on your own. Full transcripts and citations are posted for free on Patreon as well if you're looking for them. We would appreciate it so much if you could share our show with a friend who might also enjoy it. And if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to follow and rate our show by tapping the three dots on our profile and then the little star icon listed as rate show. It really helps us out. If you have questions or concerns, feel free to email us at outonearthpod at gmail.com or shoot us a DM on Instagram and be sure to take our survey in the description below to suggest episodes or let us know what we did right. And thanks again for listening. Together we can find joy out on earth. Out on Earth is written, produced, and edited by Cricket Kaya and Ashton Attic. Hosted by Acast. Music provided by Halisna.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.